Welcome everyone to another episode of the Dine Sports YouTube page and podcast network. Today we've got two phenomenal guests that will be joining us today to talk about everything sports. First up, we've got Mark Mathot, NHL defenseman with the Columbus Blue Jackets, Dallas Stars, and of course the Ottawa Senators. He's also a member of Team Canada, two World Hockey Championships, and won a Memorial Cup with the London Knights. Then we sit down with author Chris Dooley, who is a longtime basketball coach and has been very, very active in the Canadian grassroots basketball scene for many years he's actually released a book lately the can't miss which is the kevin pango story and uh, it's available everywhere now um you can also just contact him directly and he'll uh, he'll send you a little autographed copy as well too but we talk about what that process was like canadian basketball landscape and more so jam-packed episode hope you guys enjoy All right, and sitting down with us today for the podcast, we've got Memorial Cup champion with the London Knights, NHL defenseman, and Brookfield High School legend, Mark Mathot. Mark, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Kyle. Good to be here. Yeah, well, I mean, I had to mention the Brookfield thing because, uh, as I'm sure you know, there, your brother and I had a brief stint coaching the uh, Brookfield basketball teams together there. So every day walking to practice, we would see your uh, your plaque up on their athletic wall of fame. And I got to figure, you know, NHL career is nice. Memorial Cup's nice there. But clearly the pinnacle of your athletic achievement is getting your face up on your high school wall. And you know, it's funny, I totally forgot it was even there. So this is sort of news to me again. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there you go. So, I mean, are we going to see you relive like the, the Coach Gordon Bombay days here? And, you know, when you get a little bit older, you're going to go coach the scrappy young kids to a city title or what? I no, I, I think it's funny you mentioned that. My wife and I are debating. We, have, we own a pretty big property out uh, in the west end of town, past Armprior, and uh, we're debating on buying a or rather we already own the land we're debating on building out there so my point is I might be coaching somewhere out in Renfrew County in the next couple of years when my son gets old enough so we'll see <laughs> yeah yeah so I mean well, that's kind of a good place to start really too because that, that that's sort of obviously where most young hockey players careers really start taking off is those teenage high school years when you're going whether it's you know WHL the Q OHL whatever and for you is the OHL I mean it's tough enough as a teenager to sort of juggle, you know, school, social life, all of that, just when you're just going to school. But when you're also going to be away from home, there's lots of travel, the demands of a season. What sort of sticks out to you now looking back on, on those high school years as far as your development as a player? That's a really good question. And doesn't get talked about enough, especially for younger guys that are not really sure what to expect when they get into junior hockey. Um, from my experiences, at least when I, when I finally made the jump and moved out to London to play there and committed to that, it's, I just turned 17. Um, what an adjustment. I mean, you have, no one warns you about this, but just, just your everyday life at school, for example, is different. First of all, you're always tired. I mean, yeah. I, I can remember falling asleep, maybe not falling asleep at the, uh, you know, on my desk, but pretty darn close. And that was just about every day because you're, 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 you're going through changes. You're a late, you know, you're a teen and you're, um, you're playing a very intense, well, you know, arguably professional sport at this point. Um, you know, you're still playing in London, at least we were playing in front of 9,000 fans. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a huge adjustment that I feel like not a lot of guys are able to manage it perfectly. I, I, I can't think of too many, you know, scholars that we had on our team in London. Some guys were doing fairly well in school, but for the most part, you're just tired all the time. And you're always worried about the next game or practice. And then you're juggling your academics in between. And it's, it's a tough thing to manage. And I, I feel like that doesn't really get spoken enough. And, uh, you know, like when you're grooming up players and talking to them leading into it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, you just mentioned practice there. And, you know, that 2005 team, you, you guys were absolutely loaded, right? Like normally a, a, a franchise is happy if they get one NHLer out of it. And you guys ended up having 11 guys end up playing in the NHL just from that 2005 team. Yeah. You guys ended up getting named CHL team of the century in 2018. Forget games. What was just like a typical practice like? for you guys when there's that much high-end talent on the ice at the same time? It was like, it was the best form of preparation for any guy that was planning on playing professionally afterwards, right? Because you're playing at this very high intensity, you're practicing at a high intensity. Um, everyone's got a high standard for you out there, including the coaching staff. So passes always had to be on. 
Um, you had to be ready to go for every drill. It was just, it was the perfect uh, culture for any guy that was really looking to play and moving on to that next level in pro hockey. So um, we were highly competitive, but also very tight. We had all come up together roughly around the same time um, when we were all drafted together, like myself, that we had Kyle Quincy and Corey Perry and Danny Savret at the time, who was CHL defenseman of the year a couple of times. So um, we had, a, we had a really strong group that came up together and we grew together. And that just kind of gave us that much more of an advantage coming to our third or fourth year together. Uh, when we finally won the Memorial cup, it was, it was a perfect storm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, looking back on it now, you, you sort of can obviously remember what they were like as teenagers. And now here, here they are sort of coming towards maybe the end of their NHL careers there, you know, what was it like playing with, you know, a 16, 17 year old Corey Perry? Was he always sort of that, that super pest or is that something he oh, yeah. added to his game later on? That was, that was how he was that, like that, that is his true form. Um, and, and what amazes me is that he's still playing that way to this day. Um, you have to admire it. And um, what a dominant player. I mean, especially in junior, you can imagine a guy at his size. I mean, he was not exactly a, a speed skater, but still get got around pretty good, but he played such a gritty style and wasn't afraid to get into the, those hard areas around the net. And that's what drew a lot of penalties for him too, right? And for us as a team, we got a ton of power plays because he was kind of a rat out there. But at the same time, arguably the most skilled player on the ice, which is uh, a very dangerous combination, but we were happy to have him on our team. Yeah, yeah. obviously probably a little bit more fun to play with when he was on your team than against <laughs> when you uh, met him a few years Absolutely. later. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Were, were you guys able to really sort of soak in the moments as that season was going on, knowing that, hey, we're doing something special here? Or was it not until sort of a, a few years down the line that you were able to actually look back on it and go, wow, that, that was a really incredible team that I was a part of? Yeah, it, it, it's hard to put words to it because during the during that time, especially at that age, mm -hmm. um, it just it's a blur. You know, it goes it goes by so quickly. And um I think we did, we were fortunate enough to have a lot of success right from the get-go. And, and even the season prior, we were the number one team in the CHL um, for the entire year almost. So um, we knew we had a really good team and we were already very confident going into that season in 2005. So um, to say that we never had the, you know, the chance to really enjoy it would be a lie. We certainly did. And we knew we had something special right from training camp, but once you get started and you get into that routine and you're so busy, right? Like with, with high school at the time and then moving into practice and just rinse and repeating every, every, every day. Um, it certainly makes things go very quickly, but um, what a story, uh, a storied season we had. And it's something that even to this day, you don't forget, you know, and, and, and you develop bonds with guys when you go through stuff like that. I mean, I, I can have a conversation with one of the boys that I played with that year and it would feel like we just picked up from where we left off. It, there would be no awkwardness. It's, it's really a, a weird thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, obviously it culminates with you guys actually winning the Memorial Cup there. D did it make it extra sweet, the fact that you guys were actually hosts that year and you were able to do it, yeah. it, it you know, at home? Yeah, and, 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 and beyond that, um, it was a lockout year in the NHL. Mm -hmm. So we had so much attention, so much media attention that year because of the damage we were doing around the league. We had like a 31 game undefeated streak during that season. So we already had the spotlight on us. Um, and, uh, and then obviously, you know, going into the Mem Cup, I just remember all the, um, all the NHL players, the ex NHL players, ex, you know, current and former guys that had come into London to watch the games and you could see them kind of rolling around a lot. And then you had all the scouts everywhere. Um, it was a, a high pressure intense tournament and and um you know if you can't manage that you probably have a bit of a hard time with it but i think because of all that attention that we had garnered throughout the year we were very prepared for it and uh, it made for a very entertaining tournament yeah yeah was it extra extra sweet to you know beat crosby's team in, in the final <laughs> year was that just sort of the cherry on top for you guys yeah and credit to sydney i mean the the entourage that he had around him all the time and all the uh um, all the attention he was getting. I mean, that kid didn't even get any privacy and he was only 17 at the time, I think. Mm -hmm. um, it was a testament to his character and the kind of guy he is. I mean, uh, I don't want to say he was carrying that team because they did have a couple other pretty big pieces that he was playing with at the time. Really, really good junior players as well. But I mean, without him, they, don't, they didn't stand a chance. And um, having played against him in that first game, I can still remember how strong he was on his skates. Uh, I, I remember taking a run at him in that first shift 
Uh, I think I knocked his helmet off too, but he stood strong, barely budged. I mean, obviously taken back a little bit, but um, I realized then and there, I'm like, okay, this kid's pretty special. He's, I can understand now where everyone's coming from talking about him and just watching him control the play out there with what he had. So um, yeah, I got a hats off to him. He was great. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't hurt that he has absolute tree trunks for uh, legs holding him up there too, eh? You almost, they're almost weird. Yeah. It's almost strange to see them. They're so big. Uh, he carries so much power. He's like a genetic freak almost. He's obviously, obviously he's got the hands and the, uh, um, you know, the, the, the mind out there to, to read the plays properly. But I mean, physically he's, he's gifted as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, you know, Fast forward to uh, your NHL days there, and obviously you had a little bit of a run-in with him in, in 2017 there. Do, do you think that, uh, you know, that, that that's his, his motive for that slash there was, okay, here, here's, here's the uh, payback for that Memorial Cup that you guys cost me there? And I don't know. I, it, was obviously a, it was an accident, clearly. I mean, I'd, I'd, look, I'd watched it over and over and over. And, you know, maybe it was a little reckless in terms of just going for the hands or just trying to reach out, or maybe it was a, maybe he was tired and he was lazy and he was just trying to slash me, yeah. but just it was the perfect angle where he caught me on my glove and it sliced right through my finger. And that was, I was angry for a while, obviously. And, and, and because it put me through so much pain and discomfort. Yeah. And to this day, I don't even have full sensation in my, in my pinky finger anymore. So, um, you know, he's left me with a scar and, I can't blame him for it. it. Was obviously just an accident in a in a freak play. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, how is the finger these days? There, did, did it end up scarring up, or you got most of the mobility back to it, or it's mobility? But it, it's just I don't have all that sensation back, right? So um, he cut right through it. It was hanging by a thread, literally by a little bit of tissue. And the doctors did a great job sewing it back on. And it was a 50-50 chance that it would take, uh, and it took okay, um, but it still doesn't feel the same. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so your hand modeling career is, is out the window. Then. <laughs> I'm not a hand model, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> amazing. So, I, I mean, moving on, you, you end up getting drafted, obviously, by, by Columbus there. And huge moment in any young player's life is hearing their name get called there. And obviously not just special for you, but special for the family as well, too. Yeah. I, I'm always curious, what were, what were mom and dad doing when, you know, they finally saw your name get called? Were, were they phoning every relative known to mankind? Were they, you know, weeping uncontrollably? They playing it cool? What, what was their reaction? It's funny. It's a funny story. At the time, I don't know if it's still like this in the draft, but they would only do the, the first... I think it was the first three rounds on the Friday. Mm -hmm. And then they go from round four to nine, I think it was on Saturday. So all I can remember was the Friday going by round. Obviously I knew I wasn't going in the first or second round or I didn't, I didn't, I didn't assume anything. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, when you're practicing with great players and you're stacking yourself up against them and you know, you belong or that you're better than so-and-so um, in that highly competitive environment, you have a high expectations for yourself. Right. So I was really bummed out that Friday that I hadn't been picked. And so um, I don't know if I went out that night for, for beers or I don't know what I did. I, maybe I was home, but I just remember sleeping in the next day because mm -hmm. I was a little depressed. You know, you see players getting picked ahead of you and you just, you're like, you know, like what the hell, like, you know, what does that guy have that I don't yeah. kind of thing. And then I think it was around 10 30 in the morning when my mom came running into my bedroom going, Mark, Mark, you know, you were picked, you're drafted. Congratulations. And there, they actually found out before I did and woke me out of bed and I, they dragged me out and I was pretty excited about it. I went the sixth round to, to Columbus and uh, you know, I was seeing other guys um, getting that had just been picked ahead of me and afterwards. And it felt really good. It was exciting and I was happy. And uh, I got a lot of phone calls from relatives and, and friends and, current teammates at the time were calling me to congratulate me as well so that was pretty cool but again I was so competitive in my own mind that I, I was pissed off yeah uh, I, I didn't like that lots of guys that I knew of had gone before me and that was just the, the way I would that was part of my makeup right and even at that age I still remember I'd, I'd write up little memos for myself and, and stick them up against you know against right above the door on my way out of the bedroom about work ethic in the summer and I do little things like that to motivate myself. And I think that was part of my makeup and what made me so competitive and probably successful in the end was I just had a different drive and, and I, I never wanted to stop getting better. I never wanted to stop training. So um, that was all part of it. But yeah, I mean, going back to the draft, uh, it was exciting and, and, and comforting knowing that all that work was starting to pay off. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I was going to say that that's probably a nice uh, sort of alarm clock there for you to get woken up and, oh, by the way, you got drafted into the NHL. <laughs> yeah, <sure. laughs> yeah. Worse ways to start your mornings. Yeah. Um, like making the jump, obviously, not only from OHL to AHL, but then AHL to NHL, there's little things that you've got to obviously add to your game and, you know, learning curves along the way. What, what were some of the biggest adjustments you found personally, you know, making the jump from junior to pro and then from pro to the NHL levels there? Well, when you're not playing, so when I made the jump to the American League level, I knew that coming right out of junior hockey, I'd end up playing in the AHL. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't going to be in the NHL. I wasn't ready. So when I ended up in Syracuse after NHL training camp, first of all, training camp gives you a great idea once you're at the NHL level to see what you're missing and to see what you need to work on. You're watching all these other great players. And uh, so that kind of gave me a good idea what I needed to do going back down to Syracuse. But at the same time, it's, it's new, right? You're all of a sudden playing with like men, grown men who have families um, that have been playing in the AHL for, you know, you've got the life, the lifers that are that are a little more grizzled and a little rougher around the edges that you're playing with as well. And you'll learn off these guys and they put you in your place right away. Um, you know, bad habits that you have, maybe practice ends, you try to get off the ice right away. Nope, can't do that. Got to make sure all the pucks are off the ice. So you, you get, you, you learn all these new responsibilities and you go back to being treated like a rookie again. And I just won the Memorial cup in London. So, you know, I've got a chip on my shoulder. I think I'm really good. And, uh, but it's a wake-up call, and um, never mind all the responsibilities that you're you're learning as a rookie. But you're also living on your own now. You know, mm-hmm. I have to rent it a condo, and um, that's where having, you know, where I was lucky at least having parents that were helping me out. They let me rent a Toyota Privia van. It's like a big silver spaceship-looking van. Absolutely embarrassing, but they gave me wheels for a couple months. Yeah. So that allowed me to get around and figure out where I wanted to live and do all that until I finally bought my own vehicle for myself. But um, yeah, it's a huge adjustment as anybody knows, getting thrown out there in the real world and not relying on your mom and dad anymore. Um, You grow up real fast. And I think the OHL was a really good, um, you know, bridge for that, but you can't, you can't replicate living on your own in a new city down in the States, no less. Um, So it was a really good learning experience for me and it taught me a lot of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure it was running through your head a couple of times, pulling up to practice in that minivan there, thinking, oh, oh I, I've really made I, it now. <laughs> I drove. I had a, we had a first rounder. His name was Alex Picard at the time. And uh, he would drive with me to practice. And after games, we'd go to like down the street to like Applebee's or wherever we were having dinner after the game. And I still remember pulling up to a traffic light and he and my like my van had no tents. Yeah. And there were two girls driving beside us in another vehicle. And I remember him looking over at them and they were kind of smiling and laughing at us. We're in our suits in this awful looking van. <laughs> and I remember him just like cranking the seat back all the way back in reclining mode and then running into the back of the car to hide from them. And that was an example of how, you know, how we thought at that age, like we actually cared what people thought when we were driving around. Obviously to this day, I could drive anything and I wouldn't care, but yeah. you know, those are all learning experiences and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you remember your first goal? Like what, what was going through your head when, when you finally saw you, yourself tickle the twine at the NHL level for the first time? Oh man. Uh, that would have been when I was playing again. It was in Nashville. And I remember just the, the play was going up the ice and that's when I could really, really skate before I started having knee issues. <laughs> I beat everybody up the ice kind of a, as a third man high trailing over their offensive blue line. And I got a pass from, I think it was Manny Malholtra. And yeah, I kind of got lucky. It kind of deflected a little bit and went shelf. And um, I just remember feeling relief, you know, like especially as a D-man, a stay-at-home D-man, you just want to you just want to break uh, break the goose egg and 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 uh, uh, get it out of the way, and then it can kind of go from there. Because even as a D-man, you stress that you don't want to have a donut on the stat sheet all year. So yeah. it felt really good, gave me some newfound confidence, and I was able to grow from there. Yeah. Yeah. What was uh, going through your mind when you found out that not only had you been traded, but you were actually traded to your hometown and were coming back to Ottawa? Oh, it was great. It was actually on Canada Day. And uh, I remember we're, I was having a party, a big Canada Day outdoor party at my house. I don't know, like 30, 40 people or whatever that was. And that was, we were setting up for it. People were going to start rolling in around, uh, you know, one, two o'clock or whatever it was. And at noon was when free agency opened up and teams were allowed to start making trades again. Mm-hmm. 
So I had no idea until I was just randomly checking Twitter. Twitter was just starting to get really big around that time in 2012. Like, yeah. you know, it had been around obviously years prior, but I've been starting to use it more and, and, and news was starting to travel faster on Twitter than it was on TV, right? Mm-hmm. So I remember updating the feed and seeing Bob McKenzie post something about me being traded and that it was official. And I'm thinking like, no one's even called me yet, but that's <laughs> how fast the news traveled, right? Yeah. And knowing Bob McKenzie, he was on the ball before anybody else was. So yeah, um, yeah I, I saw the announcement officially made on, on, on Twitter and then I got a call from Brian Murray and then uh, at the time, Scott Housen, our GM in, 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 uh, in Columbus. And it, the timing couldn't have been better, right? Because I was elated. Like, like it was insane how I, I'd, I'd never felt that before. It would have been, it was a dream of mine to play for the Sens. Yeah. And um, we were able to celebrate with friends all day there at the house. It was awesome. It couldn't have been a better timing and situation. So uh, that's a day, oddly enough, completely almost unhockey related, unrelated to hockey, I mean. Because uh, we weren't at the rink or anything, but it's probably one of the most memorable memorable moments of my career. Yeah, yeah. Go figure. A eh? good old Bob breaking the news to you before your own GM does, eh? Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, were you aware that they had sort of been kicking the tires on you for a while? Because you know, obviously, after the fact, reports came out that oh, they had actually tried to trade for you a couple of times. Well, no, I had no idea because. At that time, um, it's funny, the, the last shift I had as a Blue Jacket leading up to that was months before the end of the season because I'd broken my jaw, took mm-hmm. a slap shot to the jaw and had broken two spots. So I couldn't play and we were completely out of the playoffs. So instead of coming back maybe a week to play like three games, I just stayed off. And, um, and then that summer, I, I got invited to play at the World Championships so I was, I was playing at the World Championships with this huge fishbowl covering my entire face, protecting me. And I had a very good tournament playing with all these other pretty good NHL players. And I was kind of an unknown guy coming out of Columbus. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing a scout. I think it was an Ottawa scout on the plane. I don't even want to drop his name. I don't even know if this is allowed. But I kind of just talked to him a little bit and said, yeah, I mean, I'd love to play in Ottawa. Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if that had anything to do with the trade, but. Um, sure, sure enough, eh, like a couple months later, I get, I get traded there. So, um, you know, as a blue jacket getting hurt that last shift of my broken jaw, it kind of just sealed the deal, I guess. And I was gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, while we're talking about it, you, you had your fair share of painful injuries over the year, whether it was, you know, the pinky, the knees, the jaws, the, which one was maybe not the, the most, you know, painful in the moment, but the most frustrating to try and play through and, and come back. I had a really bad back my contract year in Ottawa. I remember the nerve pain I was getting all the way up and down my leg and back, right? Starting in your butt area too. and Or your sciatic there then? It was all sciatic nerve pain. And it was probably because I had a bit of a herniation mm-hmm. in my back and in one of the discs. And uh, that was hard because you can't really... I think the timing of it looked really bad too because people maybe think, oh, maybe he's just holding out. He doesn't want to play or whatever it was. And, it couldn't be farther from the truth because I'm playing in my hometown. Mm-hmm. I want nothing but to have a good reputation here. And uh, that was frustrating because you couldn't really see it. But then we'd see doctors and we'd do the, all the MRIs and stuff and they could see that there was an issue. But that was really frustrating because I could barely get out of bed in the morning. And then I'd be taking painkillers just to try to practice. Same thing with my knee, very similar with the knee. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was taking Toradol in, in training camp. You know, just when you're taking total in training camp, what is that telling you? You know, so that's when you should be your, your most fresh, your healthiest. And that kind of was an indicator to me that it was probably coming to an end, which was hard for me to stomach because I always took such great pride in taking good care of myself and training really hard. And, um, you know, being told no by your body when your mind is saying yes, just keep yeah. playing a very conflicting uh, thing to go through and um you know there's times now even when i'm still in denial and i have a hard time watching tv you know when i'm watching the games because i feel like i can still play out there and i still take great care of myself but i have a defect and that's something that i have to learn to live with yeah yeah well i mean hey on your hand you you threw out your back playing at the nhl level i threw out my back this summer landscaping my backyard so you know (laughs) apples to apples clearly right (laughs) we'll do that so i get it yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, you finally get the news. You're, you're coming back to your hometown. You're, you're going to start the season with the Sens there. You know, did, did everyone and their grandmother that you ever knew growing up all of a sudden start reaching out and trying to hit you up for tickets? Or oh. what was it like for that first game that you were going to be putting on the Sens jersey? 
Well, and that's added stress, right? As a player, I know people don't maybe always understand, but when you're playing, or at least when I was playing, I was always so focused on just hockey, right? So all that extra, that extracurricular stuff going on around you, um, it can be a distraction. And, um, you know, as a player playing with all that stress and pressure, you can become very fragile mentally if you're not managing it properly. And so that was the stressor. And, and so I, I had my dad actually kind of intervene and he was dealing with all the, you know, all the family members, anybody that wanted to go to games, they would go to him and he would coordinate with one of the people through the team. So that way I wasn't worried about it. I was just, you know, I'd get up in the morning on a game day and I was just focused on the game and that was it. I didn't want to worry about getting tickets for John's, John, Joe, John Doe, or, you know, somebody else in the family that wanted to go. So he, he became uh, your de facto got, ticket broker then essentially. Yeah. Well, and it's true. <laughs> and then you've got all your friends. Yeah. Close buds that, and people just think you can get tickets for free. Right. Yeah. Like, Little do people know that as a player, you're only allotted two per game, and that goes to your mom and dad. Never mind your wife or your kids, yeah. and then and you're paying for all those people, and it's like a hundred plus dollars a ticket, and then so all these people always just expected to get freebies and stuff. And I think over time, as the years went on, they just realized, ah, Mark's a lost cause. I can't get any free. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's kind of how it works. Yeah, yeah. You know, looking back on your time in Ottawa, are there one or two moments that maybe stand out as extra special to you? Like, like, what do you remember your most about your time as a Sen? I remember the playoff rounds, um, you know, playing against Montreal, playing against New York, playing against Pittsburgh. Um, those are going to stick out to me just because of the support we were getting from all the fans. And it was crazy. Like we'd get we'd fly in and land in between games during a round or after we won a round and you'd see all the fans lined up at the airport, for example, like a huge lineup of people. And um, it, it's hard to put, it's hard to put words to what that makes you feel, but the pride that you get from it and the boost, the confidence booster and just those feel good feelings that you get um, is something I can't really replicate anywhere else. And um, so those for me are probably going to stand out the most um, because they were successful moments as a team and the fans were rallying behind us and everything was going great. So absolutely all the playoff rounds that we won will definitely stand out to me. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously Vegas joins the league. You have to have the expansion draft there, you know, heading into it, there were, okay, which direction is the team going to go this way, that way, who are they going to protect? Were, were you sort of told ahead of time that, you know, hey, by the way, this is sort of the direction we're going. There's a chance Vegas might take you. Or were you kind of surprised by the fact that you weren't protected? How, how did that whole process sort of play out? Well, leading into it, I kind of had a good idea right away because what was going to happen? Because we had Eric Carlson, who was obviously going to be protected. Mm -hmm. Cody Cece, who I guess, in my opinion, was obviously going to be protected. He was significantly younger than I am and tons of upside or whatever. So he was a no-brainer. And then you had Dion. But Dion had a, a no trade clause. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he was obviously immediately protected unless he waived it. So that was three, your three allotted positions on D that were allowed to get protected. So I'm not dumb. I just did the math and figured, okay, I'm going to probably get picked here, I think. And, um, um, you know, I had a conversation with Pierre and I didn't want to put pressure on the team. I just said, listen, I understand what's happening here. And, uh, you know, I'll accept any fate that comes my way. And, so be it, you know, and, and, and I didn't want to put pressure on Dion. So in fact, cause I know that he was getting pressure to waive his no trade from some people. And mm -hmm. I actually called Dion and I told him like, listen, you don't owe me anything. You've earned your no trade clause. That's your, you've earned that. Do not waive that for anybody, including myself, you know, and he appreciated the phone call cause it took a little pressure off him. And I didn't want him thinking about that every day. And mm -hmm. maybe he wasn't, but it sounded like he was appreciative of that call. So you know, from that moment on, I had a new a good idea. I was gone. I didn't know that I, I didn't, I didn't assume that I was going to get traded to, to Dallas from Vegas. But the moment I had the first, my first conversation with that Kelly McCrimmon from, from Vegas, mm -hmm. he kind of, it was a weird call where he was, didn't seem very eager to have me on board. It was more asking me how I was doing and if I was willing to uh, send them a no trade list. So right then and there, I thought, okay, shit, I'm not going to end up in, in Vegas. Yeah. which is a shame because I was looking forward to that. Um, and I certainly like the tax plan there, unlike Ontario. <laughs> so um, sure, sure enough, I'm sitting at the keg with my wife and my in-laws. 
we're having dinner maybe five or six days after the fact that Vegas called me and uh, it was uh, uh, Jim Nail from Dallas, the general manager. And we had a great conversation, told me that, that they had traded for me and um, I couldn't have been happier. Like again, a great organization with a ton of history, uh, a lot of experience winning and a no state tax. So I thought this is perfect. The money's there, the uh, culture, the hockey culture's there and it's a great place to live. And it's a, it's a stark contrast from where we live here in Ontario, in Ottawa. So uh, we were excited for it and it turned out to be great. Aside from my injury, they took great care of us. And uh, what a first class organization. I, can, I cannot speak uh, more highly of them. Yeah, yeah. So, well, that was going to be my question, right? Is, you know, were you mentally preparing yourself to, you know, okay, I, I'm a golden knight now. Let's start looking up who my, you know, potential teammates are all going to be. Or right from the get-go, based on that conversation with the GM, you, you sort of had in your mind that, you know what, like I got selected by them, but there, there's not really yeah. a chance that I'm playing for them. No, yeah, no, exactly. Just like I touched on earlier, I, there, I knew right away, just based off my conversation with them, I could kind of read that. Uh, you know, read in between the lines that I wasn't going to end up there. So I didn't even bother doing any research on them. I didn't care. I didn't care for it. Yeah. You know, yeah. I was looking forward to finding out who I was going to. Yeah. yeah. Obviously. And yeah. On that note, when they did ask me for my no trade list, I was allowed to put, I think, cause it was in my contract that I'd signed with Ottawa. I was allowed to pick 10 teams. So I picked mm -hmm. every single Canadian team. Mm -hmm. I can talk about it now. I never, I didn't want to at the time, uh, but I picked every Canadian team um, except for maybe was it Vancouver I think, because at least, you know, you know, you're paying a lot there still, but at the same time, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I picked every New York team because of the tax bracket there. And I picked every California team. Mm -hmm. Those were my 10 teams. It was purely based on money. Mm -hmm. And I can say that wholeheartedly now without a care in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, it's probably also nice to, you know, be mid-February and there you are down in Dallas, Texas, and it's, you know, 30 degrees. People don't get it. People yeah. don't get the advantage these teams have because yeah. We, when we're going down there for a road trip and you're coming from minus what's what minus 17 here today. Yeah. And you're paying 55% taxes. Mm -hmm. And then you go down there and you're paying 38%, which is a lot of money when it comes to the amount you're making in a short period of time in our short careers. Mm -hmm. Never mind the fact that it might be plus 15 in mm -hmm. Texas around that time of year. So you get off the plane and you get this like gust of warm air hitting you in the face. It's even better. <laughs> for yeah. And you oh, these lucky pricks, you know, like <laughs> I can't get over the fact that they're like, what a dream it would be to play here. And that was what a lot of us thought. And that's the truth. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we've got obviously a big event coming up world juniors and uh, you know, while you didn't necessarily participate in the world juniors, you did actually get to be on team Canada twice for two world hockey championships there, you know, yeah. For, for someone who has grown up playing hockey their whole life, but has never represented their country, you know, what is that feeling like putting on that Team Canada jersey for the first time? Oh, it was awesome. It was yeah. awesome. I still remember that first camp that I'd gone, or camp, that first tournament I went to for the, the World Championships after that season in Columbus before I was traded. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like, and it's, it's the way they take care of you. Um, you get there and they, they seal off an entire floor and you have this massive ballroom down there that they've completely turned over into like, you know, with Canadian flags everywhere. And they make it very comfortable with TVs and Xboxes and uh, great food. Like they really go above and beyond to take care of you and make you comfortable because you're gone for a month. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then you're around excellent hockey players with, you know, ex greats that are running the team. So you see guys like Rob Blake walking around and you're just like, Oh my God, this is awesome. Yeah. And, uh, get to talk to these people and you get to pick brains right like I was playing with with tons of all-stars at the time and you get to see how they carry themselves in practice their preparation what they do to get better how they eat um, all that stuff is great for a young player like myself at the time mm -hmm. uh, to kind of feed off of and learn from and um, it's it's an incredible feeling to represent your country you have this sense of pride when you put on the jersey and certainly when you step out on the ice and warmups and you know, you're with team Canada and uh, it's a really great feeling. And those are some really memorable moments for me in my career. Yeah. yeah. You, you almost revert to being a kid again, even though you're, you're a grown man. At that time. And it's not on the level that you would be when you're playing in the Olympics. I understand that certainly maybe not even comparable to the world juniors. It's not the same stage uh, because you know, the viewership's not even close to the same, but nevertheless, you're playing with first-class players and yeah, it's, 
it reminds you, it brings you back to playing, you know, NHL 94, when you can go to that international mode and play for team Canada or North America or whatever it was. And um, it's a pretty neat feeling. Yeah, play with all the 99 overall players there and then go up again <laughs> exactly. and just, just yeah. wax them. <laughs> it just rinse my younger brother when he's playing with like Pittsburgh or something and I've got Team Canada. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you know, I've got Lemieux on my team. Yeah, well, he's also on my team and I've got the entire <laughs> Eastern Conference All-Stars here. Yeah, with line mates like Gretzky, you know, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Do, do you have any predictions of how uh, this, this year's World Juniors are going to go? You're asking the wrong guy. I have no idea. <laughs> I haven't even been watching TSN. Um, it's funny, eh? without the sports, I'm actually starting to pick up on it again now with the NBA coming back. But yeah, um, yeah I haven't been following much. So I don't even know, you know who the favorites are and where we stand. I'm assuming we're up there. But yeah. right now, I have no idea. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us and uh, you know talk about your career and your time in Ottawa and all, all your time in the show as well too there and we wish yep. you all the best heading into the holiday season and uh head awesome thanks for having me kyle appreciate it want to take a real quick break to talk to you guys about our friends over at rollo golf listen golf is hard it can be frustrating the last thing you want to be doing is not only playing poorly but dressing poorly out there and that's where rollo golf has you covered their unique prints are actually limited runs. So that means once they sell out of a certain pattern, it's done. You can't order anymore. Doesn't matter how much you beg and plead, they're done, they're retired, which makes it cool because you guys can have limited collection for your wardrobe to make sure that you are at least looking good out on the golf course. I've actually picked up a few of their shirts myself and I can say from experience, you know, it's phenomenal. It's comfy. It's breathable. It doesn't help my game very much, but I at least look pretty good out there. So head over to Rolo Golf, today. That's rollo.golf is their website. It's not a .com or a .org. It's a .golf domain name. And use the checkout code DINES15 to take 15% off your order on checkout. So make sure you use that code DINES, D-Y-N-E-S 15 to save 15%. And make sure you get your orders in soon because everybody and their grandmother is going to be ordering things online this year. So you want to make sure that you get that gift for that special someone underneath the Christmas tree on time this year. Order today and use the checkout code DINES15. All right, and joining us today is Chris Dooley, who is a longtime basketball coach and author of the Can't Miss the Kevin Pango Story. How are you doing today, sir? Doing great. The lovely winter wonderland here in Burlington. Yeah, yeah. We were just chatting off air there. You, you guys are getting all the snow. We're getting all the rain here in Ottawa. Yeah, it's usually the other way around. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, wanted to start off with the book itself there. And, uh, you know, in, in preparing for this interview, we, we were going over some of your previous interviews and came across an interesting quote where you said, um, you know, it, it, you're not so much an author as you are a, a basketball coach who happened to write a book. <laughs> Why was it important for you to sort of make that distinction uh, ahead of the release of this book here? I think, I think basically the whole idea is that, um, uh, I, I don't have any history at all uh, as, a, as a writer. Um, yeah. The Can't Miss is my first attempt at a book. And uh, I've spent uh, years coaching uh, basketball at a whole bunch of different levels. And uh, I think it's sort of cool that somebody um, who loves basketball has spent his life in basketball dealing with high-level players all along gets to spend five years following one specific elite athlete. Yeah, yeah. And... I mean, you know, you just touched on it right there. The, the book obviously centers around Kevin, right? And, and, you know, he had a very successful career at Gonzaga. He had success at the provincial level, at the national level, everywhere else in between there. And you actually have a fairly close relationship with the Pangos family just in general. So uh, at what point did sort of the seed of the book get planted in your head as far as, hey, uh, let's write a book and, and let's have Kevin sort of be the focus of it? Well, it's, that's sort of a long story, but Bill and I uh, coached the provincial team uh, together in the in the mid '80s, and uh, you know OBA hooked this guy up and this guy up and coached together, and we didn't know each other very well, and we became best friends, and we're still best friends to this day. And then uh, Ke Kevin and Kayla came along, Pangos's, and and my my son Daniel, my daughter Nicole came along, and we were at Camp Olympia, and we were doing basketball stuff, all that. And then uh, I read a book. Uh, 
very great book called uh, uh, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Mm -hmm. And all of the, what Malcolm Gladwell wrote about wasn't the idea that all these people are great, but it's the reasons why they are great and what they take advantage of. And, and at the same time that summer, Kevin was invited to the national team tryout. Um, and uh, he was 16 years old. Leo was the coach and he, uh, he went into that camp and just said, I'm just going to go for it. Doesn't matter. I'm 16 years old. I'm just going to go for it. And he went for it. He impressed everybody. And they decided to take him on a trip to Italy. So he was the youngest player ever to play for uh, Canada's national senior men's team. And then I started thinking, maybe Kevin, this kid I've known since running around in, at, at Olympia in diapers and rubber boots, maybe he's an outlier because like this, like he's been a quality guy all along, but man, oh man, 16 years old on the national team. And then it just started to, uh, from there, it started to percolate in my mind. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when you first approached the family and, you know, you, you told Kevin that, that he was, Hey, I'm going to write a book about you. What was his initial reaction? Was, was he confused? Was he nervous? Was he excited? <laughs> well, Bill and Patty, his parents were both a little bit shocked at the whole idea. Kevin was like he is all the time. He was nonplussed. It was just, okay, you want to write a book. But Patty and, and Bill both sort of had the idea that he hasn't done anything yet. And I said, well, it isn't what he's done. It is a little bit about the path that he's been on so far, but I really believe this is before Gonzaga. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I said that I, I really believe that uh, there's something here. It's a great story. And the number of people in, in the basketball delivery system in Canada that had their hands in helping Kevin. It's absolutely amazing. And that's what I sold them on is it's not about Kevin. It's mm -hmm. about basketball in Canada and using Kevin's story as an example. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head right there, right? Uh, obviously Kevin is a large focus of the book, but it's sort of the larger, you know, it, it takes a village mentality. That is one of the themes that just, you know, comes up again and again and again in it there. Yeah. So is that mentality, do you find now that we're sort of evolved into this AAU social media, you know, basketball trainer saying, you know, I produce this player, I produce this player. Have we sort of gotten away from that? You know, it takes a village mentality or, you know, what, what's your sort of take on just the landscape of basketball? Right? Well, I, I think if I can back up a little bit, I think that uh, when Kevin was in his last year of, of high school uh, in Holland Landing, uh, Dr. Dennison, the sense there was a lot of pressure on him mm -hmm. to go to a prep school because he was a sort of a poster child for what was happening in basketball Canada. And it was at the sort of the precipice of this whole prep school mentality of, well, it's not good enough in Canada. You got to go to Florida or you got to go to somewhere else. Yeah. And Kevin analyzed that with Bill and Patty, obviously, and sort of felt the idea that I can get what I need in terms of training, in terms of competition, in, in terms of scheduling by surrounding myself with people like Roy Rana, like Leo Rotens, like Sam Gibbs from the national team, Mark Nickel was a great, or Matt, sorry, Matt Nickel, a great trainer, physical trainer, that he felt he didn't need to go. And he, he, he said, I want to be a kid. Uh, these are all my good friends. Mm -hmm. I want to be with them. This is my last year to be with them because I'm going somewhere else later. So I thought, I think now a little bit the sense of you have to go to prep school. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't really believe that. I believe that, uh, you know, that, you know, they, the connections that you have by what you play. Um, I don't think you really, really need that, but I mean, I'm, uh, you know, Kevin's eight years out of graduating high school and the whole world has changed since then, you know? <laughs> so it's funny in terms of basketball, because it is, it is exciting for Canada, but I just worry a little bit that the right people are, are helping these kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you've been involved, as you said, in basketball from the grassroots all the way up to the highest levels in, in Ontario and beyond there. And, yeah. you know, obviously a lot has changed since the 80s there, but what are some of the things that you think, whether it's the, the province or even just Basketball Canada, have gotten better at? And, and what are the things that they're doing well these days to help grow the game and promote, you know, growth within the players? 
Well, one of the things I write about in the book is, is, is I analyze the careers of Kevin Pangos, uh, Steve Nash, and Jay Triano. And I show that, like, Jay's, Jay was so funny with me telling me that he was, like, senior in high school before he really, really got a sense of what he could do. And, and what happened, and then Nash had a little bit more, but nobody was recruiting him. And even though all everything he was doing in world championships in 94, all that sort of stuff, it, it, there still wasn't the programming that Kevin had. And, and that's one of the things that comes out in Outliers is that Kevin had the opportunity to take advantage of a lot of programs. And I think the best thing and it might be a FIBA level, but we're establishing kids earlier and earlier. When I coached the provincial team, it was U19. Um, I did it for four years, and it was U19 guys. And we had Manawatsa, as an example, who was a university player already. And some provinces had a whole bunch of university players that were playing on their provincial teams. Well, and, and before me, it was under 21. And now they make it under 17 is the highest level. And I think that's awesome because that means that 14, 15 year old kids and there's U15, there's U17. I think that those sort of opportunities, like Kevin is a good example that he was never nervous uh, at, at, at any games at Gonzaga, you know, 6,000, 10,000, doesn't matter how many people because he was prepared. Uh-huh. And he was pre- prepared because of his time in the gym, but also he was prepared because he got so much competition and training at the highest levels, very, very young, that it was just accepted that these guys got a shot at the NBA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and if we look at maybe the flip side of the coin, there, what are what are some of the things that you know some of these organizations need to be doing a better job of in in order to support that growth of the players moving forward? Well, one thing, and this kid I'm dealing with right now, I just the whole idea of uh, don't be the next Steve Nash because or don't be the next Kevin Pangos, just be your best. Mm-hmm. And that should be the mentality. And um, I think the whole idea of uh, don't worry about the rankings and people rank and understand why they do that. And the connections uh, around the world are phenomenal. And Canada's success in basketball, I think, is going to continue to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that uh, a values-based sense of it still comes down to you getting your butt in the gym improving at what you're weak at and maximizing your skill level. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there there are sort of two schools of thought, if you will, uh, around it there. There's obviously the the multi-sport advocates who say play as many sports as you can, you know, all all through growing up. And then there's the early specialization advocates as well, too, there. Where do you sort of fall on on that spectrum? And what what is sort of that sweet spot age that you would recommend, you know, people start focusing that, you know what, Timmy's got a shot at whatever, getting a Div 1 scholarship here. He should start focusing on whatever basketball only or hockey only or football only well I think I think that's one of the best things that Canada basketball has done is they learn to train and the whole process of of identifying the ages where people should go Kevin Kevin played uh, all sports until he was in grade 11 and grade 12 his last year of uh, at at Denison is when he went full basketball Mm -hmm. and um that's just one example I feel I feel that um the hype of all of these players, which is awesome, and the, the talent of all of these guys that are in the NBA and, and knocking on the door of the NBA has created a sense of, well, they can do it, I can do it, mm-hmm. and then I got to do it now. And a lot of pe- parents, a lot of people think, well, you know, that you know, your grade eight year is a big year, and I'm thinking, I don't think anybody really cares that you won the uh, county championship at your elementary school. Um, <laughs> I think that the mentality should be again about growth. And I, I, like, I think that when you're in grade nine, grade 10, you're starting to evolve. Uh, Depends on puberty. It depends on all sorts of issues. But I do think that uh, if you play multiple sports, like Kevin was a great hockey player. Kevin was a great volleyball player, very different from basketball, but he took stuff, conceptual stuff from those sports and helped him become a better basketball player. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if there was a kid who was listening to, to this episode right now, who's thinking, you know what, I, I, I could be the next Kevin Pangos, or I, I want to follow a similar path as he did there. What would be your advice as far as tangible things that they can do to put them on the right track? You mean other than read my book? 
<laughs> um, I, I think the biggest thing that they need to do is, is, is uh, attach themselves to good coaching, mm-hmm. um, uh, good programs, and there's good programs all over the place. Um, and uh, make sure that you listen and get with people that, yeah, like at my age, I can coach or whatever, but it's, there's guys that, you know, that are just finished their university careers who are involved. And I think that the, the more information you can gather and get serious about what you really want to do, that's really going to help you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you've got experience at those high elite levels, whether it's, you know, the provincial team and, or, or whatever. And, um, you know, you, you've been the one who has overseen some of the training camps and the cuts and all of that as well, too. Yeah. So from a strictly coaching perspective, if you're, you know, an athlete who, who gets uh, invited to attend one of these things, what are coaches looking for when everyone who is attending is sort of at that elite level there? What are the things that make you stand out in a tryout? Well, number one, listen with your eyes. Uh-huh. A lot of times kids, like you're talking and you can just tell the kids are, they're thinking ahead of what's the next drill or what, how I did in the last competition or whatever, instead of just listening with your eyes, because a lot of coaches notice that whole idea that this kid, is he really, or she really coachable? And I, I always say coachable means changeable that here you've got, you know, you're an awesome physical talent, whatever, but to fit into the other four people on the floor, here's what we've got to do. And I think that uh, the, the being there early, like if, if practice starts at two, you're there at one thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, you hustle after everything you, you know, because one of the things that I, when I was involved at the University of Guelph and I'm recruiting, I would watch a player and almost hope that they would look bad mm-hmm. and they would screw up because then you can really start to see the internal aspects of that person's, you know, can we coach this kid for four years? You know, something bad happens, he gets on, you know, the rafts or he gets on his, worse, he gets on his teammates, all of that sort of stuff. And I think that uh, just working hard, listen with your eyes um, and, you know, outwork everybody. Cause yeah. if you, you know, you know, I worked, I worked with Dave Smart for, for four years. And um, one of the things I love about Dave is that he always talks about the defense mm-hmm. because the offense is at that level. The offense is going to take care of itself. We're going to find guys who can shoot. We can find guys that can do this, all that, but can you defend? Um, because if you can't defend your position or now it's because, coming multiple positions uh you're not as valuable to the team mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i mean speaking of work there you know lo- looking back on it having done both now w- w- what is tougher work for you there? becoming an author and writing a book or, or being a coach <laughs> uh they're, bo- they're very similar actually one of the things that i found in writing the book is there's a lot of uh a lot of time where it's lone, not lonely, but alone. Um, but then like you take, it takes a village to uh, create a player, raise a child. It takes a village to write a book. And uh, that's, what's cool about it is my connections in basketball really helped me once I committed to doing the book on Kevin. Like I thought I was going to write a book, a book about a kid that I really admired and he was doing well as a 16 year old, he was going to get a scholarship somewhere. But once it was like an onion, once I started to peel back all the different things, you know, it involves immigration of his grandparents. It involves, uh, you know, all the different guards before, uh, before Kevin at Gonzaga, Dan Dickow and all those guys. Um, and I think that uh, basketball is, is that too, that it, you want to win you want to do well but when I wrote the book to be honest I didn't know I was gonna I didn't care about selling one copy mm-hmm. until the book is done and then <laughs> and then the next stage starts so sort of like for coaching a basketball is you're you're picking your team or you're looking at your you're putting your schedule together well then it becomes a daily habitual here's what we've got to do Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, obviously the experience didn't sour you too much because uh, you, you've actually got a new project in the works as well, too, where you're going to be releasing a new book coming up. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it, and it's sort of cool because it does tie into Can't Miss and the Kevin Pango story because uh, Camp Olympia Sports Camp in Huntsville, 
Um, Bill, back in the 80s, he he got me involved in Olympia, and I've been there ever since. And uh, a big there's a big part in the book about the attitude of Camp Olympia, of um, the idea that you're on a journey and you're going to maximize what you can do in that journey. So anyway, um, I got this idea about a year ago that, okay, sometimes in life, the hardest thing to do is something for the second time. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a book, I pulled it off, very proud that I was the only one who had the idea of writing a book about this 17 year old kid um, and it pulled it off, but now uh, doing Camp Olympia, it's it's a 47 year history of Camp Olympia, and it's it's just a massive, massive job. But it's still uh, values based. Um, uh, the, the book is called A Hero's Journey um, from Little Norway to Camp Olympia, because the, the, where the land is in Huntsville was a Norwegian Air Force base in the Second World War. So I wrote about that and connecting those those men who trained there to what's going on at Camp Olympia now. So I'm just, I'm very, very excited about, about how, you know, again, I'm at the stage right now. Okay, Chris, are you going to actually pull this off? Like it's, uh, uh, it's exciting. It's yeah. very, very exciting. Yeah. Daunting task. I'm sure though. Yes. Yeah, for sure. But it's, if it's not, if it's not hard, it's not worth it. Yeah. You know, it's like, again, you can analyze back to, uh, to a player or anything like, you know, oh, this is hard. Yeah. <laughs> they don't just don't give they don't give out million dollar contracts you go get them <laughs> yeah. you know and, and i think that one of the things that i like about back to kevin's attitude about the book too is that it's daily and it's not i'm not preparing comparing myself to my other book or i'm not comparing myself to other authors i'm just doing i'm going to be the best chris dooley book writer that i can be and i think that this book you know, like it's the people that I've interviewed, I'm just going, oh my God, the stories here are beautiful, but now I got to write them. Yeah. You know, and bring them, bring out, cause it's, again, it's, it's not my book. It is, I'm writing it. It's, but it's not my book. It's everybody who's ever been involved in Camp Olympia's book and basketball. A lot of people in basketball in Ontario mm -hmm. have been, they've been through Camp Olympia for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I count, I definitely an iconic camp for sure there. So, yeah. I mean, where can people find you? Where can people get more information about the book there? Um, you know, where, where's the best place to get all that? Well, the, the book is a story there too. Um, <laughs> Kevin is so famous in, uh, in the U.S. and the NCAA that I decided to get my book published, self-published by an, uh, an organization in Indianapolis because I thought most of my sales would be in the U.S. and then my connections in Canada would help me sell in Canada. Um, naive now that I look back on a little bit because uh, to buy a book in Canada, I, I put it in several, I really believe in independent bookstores. Mm -hmm. And I put a few, and I'm blanking on the name of the bookstore in Spark Street, uh, where I, or anyway, somewhere in, in, uh, in Ottawa. But uh, I put them in independent bookstores, but the best way is to email me. Mm -hmm. And um, email at coachduels71 at gmail.com. Um, and I will, uh, I will mail one that day. Just e-transfer me the, the money and I'll, I'll send it out that day. And, and that way there's a personal touch to it. But it's also, I just, this next book, it's going to be, it's going to be self-published again, but it's going to be, I, I'm going to make the use of, uh, of big stores too. Because I think this is going to be, I really do think this could be huge. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Well, you know what? We're, we're looking forward to your next book there. And for those that are listening, the first book is Can't Miss, the Kevin Pango story. Go out and, you know, flip, flip a quick email to uh, Coach Duels there and uh, yeah. more than happy to send you a copy and procure you one. Yeah, that's for sure. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate it. And that's a wrap for another episode of the Dine Sports YouTube page and podcast network. Huge thank you, as always, goes out to both of our guests for sitting down and joining us today, both Mark and Chris, sharing their journeys and upcoming projects. Always cool to learn more about what they've got in the works there, for sure. If you like what you heard, make sure you like, comment, share, subscribe. We've also got various social media channels. We can connect with you guys on there as well, too. All of them are at Dine Sports. That's one word, D-Y-N-E-S, sports. 
make sure to connect with us there. And if you like the visuals of these interviews too, you can always head over to our YouTube page as well too. And uh, we upload all of our interviews in a timely fashion over there. So you can check them out and put some faces to uh, some names as well too. Have a couple more episodes left before we flip the page to 2021. So I'm going to try and get to 50 episodes before the new year. So a few more guests coming up there. We've also got our World Junior preview episode that'll be coming up shortly as well too. Till then, stay safe, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.